0: We now move on to our second panel on the role of the state. It gives me great pleasure to introduce now our second chairperson, Dr Gillian Koh, Deputy Director of the Institute of Policy Studies. Dr Koh, please.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Peace be upon you. Uh, We're so glad that we had the five religious leaders kick off our Forum on Religious Harmony this afternoon, and they've really, really set a very good pace for us uh, in discussing the next topic. I think most of you in the room have also anticipated this next topic and asked what is the role of the state, what is the role of the Singapore government in trying to continue to ensure that we enjoy religious harmony in Singapore. Um, So what we want to do in this next session is to focus on a few key questions. I think we've anticipated some of the answers to the first question, which is, What are the most important, most pertinent threats to religious harmony in Singapore today? And you've heard some of those ideas. But I think what we want to look back on is what are those threats that are different, or maybe similar, but primarily different today from 30 years ago when we first introduced the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Bill, and therefore which became the act which is in place today. The second is, therefore, uh, what are uh, you know, the ways in which the role of the state has adjusted to some of those trends? And the third is to drill down to uh, a greater detail and ask, what are the legislative, but more interestingly, what are the non-legislative levers and mechanisms that the state has contributed to uh, in fostering social harmony? and also to ensure that religious – did I say religious? Yeah, religious harmony, and ensuring that religious harmony maintains, even as we anticipate some of the trends that uh, we talked about just now. So what we've done is to assemble yet another very distinguished panel to uh, grapple with these issues. Each panelist is going to have 15 minutes to share with you their point of view, his or her point of view, on these three questions. Let me introduce them according to the order of speaking, and the first one is Mr. Richard Magnus, whom Singaporeans will recognise as uh, a Chief District Judge in his former life, right? Previous incarnation. Uh, But a lot of people will also recognise him as the Chairman of the Public Transport Council, a very, very important body in Singapore today. Maybe less of you will know that he chairs the Public Guardian Advisory Committee, he chairs the Political Films Consultative Committee, the Bioethics Advisory Committee, uh, also the Ministry of Home Affairs' Remote Gambling Act Appeals Advisory Panel. He's also the member, a member of the Public Service Commission, something he has in common with our second speaker. But more importantly, he's also Singapore's first representative to the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, the first chairman on our Casino Regulatory Authority, again, gambling related, right? And vice chairman of UNESCO's International Bioethics Committee. Now, why did I share that? I think in what Mr. Magnus has to do in all these committees, he has to uh, offer his points of view on very important values-driven questions, right? Whether it's about films or whether it's about gambling, bioethics, these all have to do with values. I think we all know that values come from somewhere. So we believe that Mr Magnus will, from his former incarnation to all his different hats that he wears today, will be able to share a point of view about how the state can, has, and continue, should continue, to play its role in fostering religious harmony today the second speaker is a very i was going to say old but very dear dear friend from school right we both went to ij Psst. and this is professor lily kong very proud to uh be able to introduce her it's my honor to do so as she is currently the provost and lee kong chien chair uh, professor of Social Sciences at SMU. Okay? Uh, she is uh, a, a really well-established and well-recognized geographer. She's written uh, widely on um, the issue of urban transformations and social and cultural change in Asia. I think most of us recognize that she's written um, a lot on cultural change in Singapore, especially as it has to do with religion and the practice of religion, and I think she's sort of uh, very suited to tackle our topic today. She's currently uh, involved in a research project to do with religion and migration in Singapore. Um, The third speaker is another very, very dear friend of IPS, and that is Ambassador Mohamed Alami Musa. He is the head of studies in interreligious relations in in the Plural Studies Program at our our Singapore's Raja Ratnam School of International Studies. He is Ambassador to Algeria and President of the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore. Um, Ambassador is, of course, a member of the Ministry of Home Affairs Resource Panel on Religious Harmony He's also a member of its independent review panel. He is involved in something called the Singapore Muslim Identity Project. Uh, he's, I think most of us will recognize him as someone who has spent many years, decades, promoting religious harmony and intercultural, cross-cultural dialogue and relations in Singapore. And I think that, again, he's eminently suited to address this topic today. He's, uh, um, a, as I said, someone who heads up um, a program in RSIS, and they're doing um, all sorts of uh, research um, to do with religion in society, interreligious relations, and uh, conflicts that stem from differences in religion. So with that, I hope you will join me in welcoming each one, one at a time, uh, you know, up to share their points of view. First, Mr. Magnus, who is actually also himself associated with the university. He's an adjunct professor at SUSS, our Singapore University on Social Sciences. So uh, Mr. Magnus first. He'll come up, present. And then after that, Professor Kong, and then Mr. Ambassador Alami Musa. Okay? So Mr. Magnus, please.
2: Good afternoon. Singapore citizens and uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've got about 15 minutes. Uh, we had a chit-chat with, uh, with Lily uh, this afternoon. Uh, we try and see whether we will not cover uh, the same uh, spaces so that we will have an opportunity to also uh, develop some common spaces, I think, in regard to this particular area. I think Dr. Matthew Matthews uh, had given us the demographic uh, this afternoon uh, the religious demographic and we know that singapore belongs to different races uh, different languages and religions all the great religions of the world are represented in singapore i think the religious leaders portray uh, some of them you have got uh, buddhism taoism hinduism sikhism um, christianity uh, the catholic church bahaism Zoroasterism, uh, as well as Judaism. So it's a very rich uh, milieu of religious uh, institutions and bodies in Singapore. And therefore, within this particular context, uh, religious and racial harmony are not just desirable goals to be achieved, but essential conditions for our survival as a nation. So what I want to do uh, today is uh, to be able to look at some of the lessons and the ground rules, the policy ground rules, we as a nation have learned during the last 68 odd years. 68 odd years, I'm using the Maria Hathok uh, riot of 11 to 13 December 1950 as a marker. Uh, We look at how these policies have evolved uh, to protect our religious freedom and its propagation uh, in Singapore. The Singapore government protects religion and fosters religious freedom in a safe and life sustaining environment. And good religion, when practiced uh, with sensitivity to our multi ethnic, multicultural, and to our multi religious uh, society, encourages good citizenship and adherence to the law of the land. The government as a secular civil society has the responsibility, not only the moral responsibility, but the legal responsibility and the authority to prevent people from engaging in acts in the name of religion if it threatens uh, the public good of maintaining public order. The state must justifiably and consistently with the maintenance of religious liberty, restrain those religious beliefs which may regard the existence of organized society as an evil in order to maintain civil government and the continued existence of the community. Law provides the framework for conducting social relations. But for a society to have longevity, especially in religious harmony, what needs to be cultivated is moral solidarity, civic virtue, and a commitment to build a common future. And this is especially important, given the various expression, the various interpretations of religious beliefs and uh, in various parts of the world which may have influence in Singapore. So in Singapore, we have developed what we call the hard law by way of legislation, which includes the constitution, uh, the criminal sanctions in the penal code, and the Sedition Act. We also have the MHRA, the Maintenance of uh, Harmony Religious Act, and recently the Public Order Act. Uh, Aside from this, we have got press laws or censorship laws to prevent uh, sensational coverage of religious disputes, and this together with uh, soft law by way of consensus statements or declarations or guidelines or conflict resolution, or the ways in which we resolve our differences uh, among religious leaders on their intersea conduct. So together with the hard law to end the various convention and customs that we have evolved in the last 60 odd years uh, contribute to the uh, broad framework in which we look at uh, the practice of religion uh, in order to achieve religious harmony. And some of these uh, are added on. We also have got organizing structures on religion. Uh, Some of these are legislated, so you have got the Presidential Council on Religious Harmony, you have got uh, the Presidential Council on Minority Rights, and others are administrative or persuasive bodies, uh, like the NSC, the National Steering Committee, the IRCC that was referred to early on, and and importantly, a body called the RRG, the Religious Rehabilitation Group. Uh, So they provide the structures in which uh, religion is being uh, looked at and uh, in order to maintain uh, religious harmony. Of course, you have got the judiciary. The judiciary is another agonizing structure in regard to this particular area. So when you have got issues of uh, where religious freedom clash with the rights of others, and uh, state interests, then it falls on the judiciary to adjudicate upon the legitimacy or the restriction uh, in regard to the issues before them. In addition to all these things, and I think I'll need to mention, in order to provide us for, for a complete picture, we also have the Group Representation Constituency, the GRC in Singapore, where one of the members of parliament representing the constituency must be a member of a minority. Uh, this is to guarantee that uh, there will always be a certain number of MPs from the minority groups and that is an important point because in, in the, the practice uh, in Singapore, normally when you look at our Malay community it is always conflated uh, with, the, with the Muslim uh, religion. Now to discourage uh, religious tensions from brewing the state has, from time to time, also used its powers of censorship. Examples include uh, the banning of Martin Saucy's film The Last Temptation of Christ and Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic uh, Verses. So, it is important for us then to have a culture of law. Uh, it needs to be more than the enactment of sound legislation and the will to enforce that legislation. Uh, it needs to be uh, actively, intentionally nurtured and fostered. So in Singapore, we have got uh, the other bodies that I referred to, the IRCC, for example, where different faiths have a regular platform to engage in a dialogue. This particular conference is one such platform when we discuss, quite frankly and openly, this whole issue on religion and religion sensitivities. In 2003, the government adopted a declaration of religious harmony, which is an affirmation of the importance of and Singaporeans' commitment towards peace and harmony. And we need also to recall that every year our schools commemorate Religious Harmony Day and celebrate our diversity. In 2008, uh, there is the NSC guidelines on racial and religious harmony. And in 2018, we celebrate uh, the 10 years of the 2008 uh, NSE uh, guidelines. So a cardinal principle of government policy must be the maintenance of religious harmony. And in order to do this, Singapore must be a strictly secular state. The government must claim ultimate political authority from the constitution and in a democracy and not from any divine uh, or ecclesiastical uh, sanction. So Singapore's government is secular, but it is certainly not atheistic. It is neutral. And that is an important principle because, as I said, all the major religions are represented here. The 1966 Constitutional Commission intentionally recommended that Singapore be a democratic uh, secular state. And the courts in Singapore, the highest court in Singapore, have affirmed that the Singapore system is one that practices what it calls a form of accommodative secularism, which considers the protection of the freedom of religion under our constitution uh, as, as as critical. When it talks about accommodative secularism, that is the other school of thought on secularism, which is... Uh, the uh, militant secularism, which uh, does not accept, which does not tolerate any practice of religion. Now, the constitution uh, guarantees the freedom of religion with certain limitations. When we were part of Malaysia, we were subject to the Malaysian constitution. Uh, But when we uh, seceded from Malaysia, we had to have our own uh, indigenous uh, constitution, and it took uh, two or three important critical decisions. In Malaysia, in the constitution, in the Malaysian constitution, Islam is stated to be the official religion. And in our constitution, we have done away with that particular uh, provision because of the uh, multi-religious milieu within our own constitution. So in Article 15 of the Singapore constitution, uh, it reads something like this. Every person has the right to profess and practice this religion, and to propagate it. So the Singapore uh, version of the free exercise uh, expressly allows religious uh, propagation, unlike the position in in Malaysia. In Malaysia, uh, you have got a broad right of propagation, but you are not allowed to propagate your faith uh, to anyone professing uh, the Islamic religion. So there are limitations in regard to that. In Singapore, we have done away Uh, with that particular uh, limitation. But this particular uh, uh, freedom that has been given to us is subject to uh, three uh, limitations. One is where it infringes public order. Uh, Secondly, where it infringes public morality. And thirdly, where it infringes uh, public health uh, issue. Uh, So the secularity of the state uh, allows linkages towards uh, religious institution. So we have uh, bodies like MUIS, I think Ambassador Alame will give a further elaboration, I think, in regard to this particular area. The appointment of the President of the Sharia Court is done by the President of of Singapore. Uh, There is also the zakat collecting. Uh, All that is allowed for because our constitution does not prohibit uh, those linkages between uh, the state as well as the institution. But I think you know uh, that being a secular state does not by itself guarantee religious harmony. Good and sensitive policies do. In the Murray-Hartog case, there was a mismanagement of the crisis by the state colonial authorities. And religious groups, uh, one of the lessons we learned was that religious groups must not get themselves involved in the political process, and no group can be allowed to exploit religious issues or manipulate religious organisations. I hear the bell ringing, and I just want to raise an an issue, I think, uh, which um, Gillian mentioned early on, uh, the other other phase of extremism, and that is the issue that arises from increasing religiosity, the one that deals with daily integration, uh, that have a segregationist tendency, Uh, Religious uh, segregation is the idea that people should be separated based on uh, their religious belief. And this is a socially practiced separation on the basis of social and religious practices and and the response, on the other hand, of general segregation against people who practice such religious practices. I remember, for example, I'm giving you a simple example because of the time. A simple example is I had an official delegation from a neighbouring state of judges uh, who visited us in order to understand how we operate our institution. And of course, when they came in, as a matter of courtesy, I extended my hand to shake their hands. But I was quite surprised and taken aback when they sort of put their hands at the back without saying a word that this was something which was not acceptable to them. So it gives this whole idea of a simple example of a segregationist uh, tendency of not being able to eat on the same table, for example, and in the practices of the various religions. Not only in the, uh, these have fine expressions itself in the various aspects of the various religions that uh, we have uh, in Singapore. So I think I I'll stop there and allow Lily to uh, fill in the gaps, I think, in regard uh, to the particular area. Thank you very much.
3: A very good afternoon to everyone um, what i'm about to say uh, will sound a little bit familiar because i will go through some of the grounds that richard's covered um with slightly different inflections um not surprising since we're talking about the same context uh, but nevertheless the different inflections and the different emphases might hopefully bring a slightly different perspective for the group. Now let me first apologise for speaking as if I have something in my mouth. I do actually, and it's a fisherman's friend, which Gillian as the ever-gracious host whipped out when she heard me struggling with my raspy throat. So uh, with apologies for the raspiness and sounding like I've got a marble in my mouth, uh, it is because I do. So let me begin by saying that um, I I asked myself the question when preparing for this particular session, is there a role for the state in maintaining religious harmony in a society like Singapore? Um, And obviously the question can be asked of very many other societies, but if you just think in the context, the specific geographical and historical contingencies of this particular city-state that we call Singapore, Um, These various reasons that I'm about to share are ones that have been uh, discussed, rehearsed over the years as to the reasons why uh, the state certainly has a role to play in helping to maintain religious harmony in Singapore. It certainly wouldn't be the only uh, actor in maintaining religious harmony. It cannot be. Um, the only actor as such, um, and it couldn't succeed if it was the only sector, but perhaps in the context of the city-state of Singapore, it's a necessary actor. Now, I've said city-state a couple of times already. I emphasise to those of you who are are born and bred here, you know this already. For those who are not so familiar with Singapore, the city is the state. The state is the city. Um, In any other country, or in most other countries in the world, if strife occurs in a particular city, you don't like what you're seeing, um, you don't like living next to somebody of a different faith, well you can move, but you can remain in your own country. In the context of Singapore, that's quite different. The city is the state, and the state is the city. Um, you could move from Ang Mokyo to Topayo, but it's not that much different. Um, so. So the fragility of a city that is at the same time a state and a state that is at the same time a city suggests that any breakdown of that condition in, a, in the city-state means a breakdown of the country as a whole. Um, just, let's just put that aside for a moment. The multifarious religious mosaic you have already heard um, and seen figures of, from Matthew when he um, did his opening remarks and Richard has uh, reinforced this the fact that we have so many from so many different groups living cheek by jowl. thirdly you have also heard Richard say something about the tumultuous past um, that we've had historically and um, Richard has dated it to 1950 uh, when the Maria Huttog Um, riots broke out, the interracial, interreligious, internecine kind of strife that took place is a context within which we um, sort of frame our current interreligious relations as such. Not to forget that we are located as a predominantly Chinese society um, within a predominantly Malay Muslim world. And so the sorts of um, actions that um, we take here uh, can have implications in inviting reactions from our neighbouring countries, Um, but equally well whatever happens in the neighbouring countries and indeed with technology anywhere in the world has a very rapid and tremendous influence on what goes on in this little city-state. Julian asked the question, what is, what is different today from, say, 30 years ago when the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act um, was enacted? And I would say that um, there are two things. the are two things that um, characterise the state in Singapore today, but also in much of the rest of the world. One is the growing globalisation and mobilities that accompany globalization, the movement of people, of ideas, of images. Um, for the scholars in the crowd, Arjun Epidurai's notion of the various scapes, right? The media scapes, the ethnoscapes, et cetera, um, with greater flows across borders and boundaries. And what this means is the growth of new social groups uh, in, in many societies, including in Singapore. And so um, even while we have what seem to be ethnically similar groups that might be coming into Singapore, religiously they could be quite different. Even religiously, what seem like similar um, religious groups will have different inflections and different interpretations and different practices that are deeply rooted in their original context so much so that the practice of a particular faith in a neighbouring country or a far-few country that might be the same faith here might have different cultural inflections on practices. And all those sorts of things together that are an outcome of the greater mobilities means that still more complexity, still more um, uh, complexity is evident in the practice of religion um, and in the complexion of religion in Singapore. So, growing globalization and its attendant mobilities is something I think that has changed over the last thirty years. A second area which I call attention to is um, basically a new, a renewed, I suppose, sense of religion in the public sphere in many different parts of the world. And perhaps perhaps in Singapore Um, certainly the literatures um, that have emerged on post-secularism in many different parts of the world uh, so you know um, when when the sociologist Peter Berger talked about secularization of the world he was really referring to what he thought was happening in Europe Uh, he has since sort of rescinded his own notion of secularization of society. And some other scholars have talked about a post-secularization that uh, religion is re-emerging in the public sphere in different ways, right? And so there is a question of this re-emergence that you observe elsewhere, and how is that impacting on the local uh, scene as such? So some of those changes, I think, are things that we want to bear in mind by way of context of Singapore, that city-state that is very multifarious, that um, has a particular history, that has a particular geography, and that is facing these changes, uh, these global changes around us. So with that sort of framing, I would say that our particular context calls for partnership In addressing religious harmony in Singapore partnership as you have heard um, from our religious leaders between the religious organizations and the secular state as such the question I turn to next before the bell comes on is what roles can the state and what roles does the state play in relation to religious harmony or more broadly societal well-being and I would very broadly categorise them into two groups. One, a fairly direct role in addressing um, the religious condition, and two, much more indirect roles. The direct roles include the legislative means that you have heard Richard speak about, um, certainly through the Constitution, uh, the very clear sense that um, you know, every person has the right to profess and practice his or her religion, to propagate it. The religious group has the right to manage his own religious affairs, um, and indeed to establish and maintain institutions for the education of their children, etc., etc. Right? So the Constitution captures all of that. At the same time, through legislative means, you've also heard about the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, uh, which Richard spoke about. So I won't go into the de- into the detail there. Uh, but I would also say that there are other kinds of legislation that are not targeted at religions per se, but uh, impact the practice of religion as such. Um, the Public Order Act, which again Richard has mentioned, uh, which I will elaborate a little bit about because he didn't have the time to do so, and amongst other things the Public Order Act regulates assemblies and processions in public place- places. and. Uh, provides the powers necessary for preserving public order and the safety of individuals at events uh, in areas that are are, uh, subject to the Public Order Act as such. And you can immediately see how religious processions in public places uh, would be folded um, under the Public Order Act as such. So in order for a procession to take place, permits would be needed. Uh, a certain strategy of containment uh, is evident, so routes, the procession routes must be approved, the time of the processions must be approved, and so forth, right? And um, all of that is, is um, reflective of the historical path, the experience when processions uh, sometimes became the platform for uh, the use of religion uh, to to incite and to create disorder, all right? So those direct um, interventions by the state through legislative means, uh, the various acts, are apparent in the context of Singapore. And a lot of it stems, as I've said, from the historical experience, the historical past. There are also policy instruments um, that have been in use aside from, from legislation um, and I cite a couple of examples. Um, the management of physical space for religious use, the management of virtual space for religious use are two areas by which policy instruments uh, have been introduced and uh, which have an impact on how religions carry out their activity and their work, um, in and of themselves but in relation to each other as well. right? So the management of physical space, um, there are policies regarding how religious groups will have access to religious space um, in every housing estate, depending on how many uh, dwelling units with Hindus, with Muslims, with Christians, etc. you have. There is a norm that is applied, and a certain amount of space is then set aside for the religious group to bid right so the christian churches can all bid for that particular site as such now that kind of very clear policy urban planning policy is a way of managing to ensure that all religious groups have access to space right and that certain religious groups which might have a socioeconomic profile that is perhaps more privileged than others will not always gain the upper hand as such and this suggests um, or this this is in place to ensure that all religious groups um, have uh, a particular uh, place in society, right? Literally a place in society. Um, as far as virtual space is concerned and the management of virtual space for religious use, um, you know, I, I, virtual, when we think of virtual space today, we tend to think in terms of the internet and so forth. But you know, the original technology and the original virtual space was through radio and television. Um, and you've heard a little bit of it from, from Richard as well. The, again, um, you have statutes like the Broadcasting Act. You have not just the legislative means, but you also have detailed codes of conduct. So the radio program and advertising code, the TV program, advertising and sponsorship code, and so forth. Um, The institutionalized monitoring through advisory committees, um, censorship review committees, appeals committees, which is also very important as part of it, to ensure that in the virtual space of radio, television, and and broadcasting more generally, um, the kinds of... Um, discourse or um, information or programming that touches on religion does not overstep a particular boundary where it becomes insensitive and um, incendiary as such. So the policy instruments would be a second um, sort of way in which the state has a direct role. A third is through more mediatory roles, um, in mediating the the kinds of conflicts that might emerge, uh, so just to give an example, uh, if you take if you're familiar with our Housing and Development Board flats uh, apartments, the public housing apartments, you will see very many uh, public spaces. They could be you know sports facilities for young children to play in playgrounds, void decks. Etc. And very often, the use of this space could result in um, intercommunal conflicts when different value systems come into play. And here, um, the HDB, for example, the Housing and Development Board, um, for example, would have offices who can be on hand to help, the town councils as well, on hand to help mediate those situations. And I know for a fact that the sensitivity to which these organisations take to approach the mediation is, is, is not left to chance. Um, so, for example, when you have a conflict involving two particular different groups, then the officers who are called upon to help with the mediation very often might come from a third group. So that the the, the sense of um, even-handedness and so forth is as important as the reality of that even-handedness. So I have talked about these direct roles, the legislative, the policy um, and the mediation. The bell has already sounded, uh, but I seek your indulgence for just another minute or so. Because I want to say something about the indirect roles um, where the state creates the platforms for religious groups to come together, to come together for dialogue, for conversation, uh, where the state provides the framing of issues and questions um, for the groups to then debate and deliberate together. Uh, But also the the suasion, the the moral suasion roles that the state can play, uh, for example, through the messaging that it puts out, the roles that religions can play, um, as guardians of moral and social well-being, as agents of progress and development, where um, the state is, is sometimes persuasive of groups that you know, um, progress and development is not antithetical to religious beliefs, etc. Um, so the, these indirect roles of creating the platform for con- conversation, for dialogue, for discussion, for framing the questions and issues, which then... Um, the religious groups, you know, sort of participate in and engage in reframing the questions, but you would then have a non-religious secular entity that is there to help frame. And then through the moral suasion or the uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, through, through the discursive um, means that the state often engages in. So... Um, Time has run out, so I will stop here, but I would be very happy during the uh, later session to elaborate on any of these ideas, or indeed to respond to your uh, comments and questions. Thank you for your patience.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, What I'll do in the next uh, 15 minutes is to raise three three points. the dynamics of religion state relations and I will discuss this in the context of religion over the last 50 years since uh, Singapore's independence and I will end off with a few, a few suggestions for us to think about but uh, your convener Matthew Matthews has requested me to uh, deal with the subject from the perspective of Islam so I'll do it but much of what I'm going to say applies to all religions in Singapore. Now, there is some degree of ambivalence in the relationship between state and religion. There are times when this relationship is friendly, there are times when it is not so friendly. There are times when it is easy, there are times when it is not so easy. but generally islam and state relations in singapore over the last 50 years or so since independence has been friendly has been easy has been a positive one this is also true for all religions i studied or i did a scan of the last 50 years of religion in singapore and i co-authored a chapter with imran taib Uh, and contributed to the SG50 publication from RSS, in which um, we noted thats that religion-state relations started on a very good footing. Post-independence, 1965, late 60s, early uh, 70s, uh, the state embraced religion as a close partner, as a useful partner, because the state saw religion as providing the moral ballast to counter the ill effects of westernization. Eighties were difficult years. I'll come back to that later. Because of the difficulties in the eighties, um, religious leaders were encouraged to do a kind of religious remodeling, so that religion's focus on the humanitarian causes and the welfare needs of the population in line. With the nation's uh, many helping hands approach, 1990s onwards. And it comes to 911 and post 911 years, and this is very much about Islam, which I want to talk about. <clears throat> um, unlike other countries, and this is where I took over uh, the helm of Moise, and I spent a good 15 years in Moise ten years executive capacity, in the last five, six years non-executive, there was a closing of ranks between Islam and the state. There was a strengthening of relations between Islam and state, unlike other Muslim minority countries. Now, this is because it's a kind of symbiotic relationship, kind of a win-win. Islam rely, uh, uh, depends on the state to prevent Islamophobia from taking root in Singapore. And we had done superbly well in that. And the state uh, looks at Islam and depends on Islam and the Muslims to take ownership of the kind of Islam to be preached to the Muslim public. Because the state and the Muslims, of course, saw Islam as a useful instrument or useful uh, way to counter radical ideology. Um, It's a useful tool in the war against terror and also an important instrument or or important way to provide content for building social cohesion, uh, resilient social cohesion. So it's a kind of win-win, the post-911 years. And I come back to the 1980s, and these were difficult years. That's why I say the ambivalence in the relationship between religion and state. And I did a study um, in the 1980s. I produced a working paper, logged in as RSIS working paper. And we saw the difficulties. You know, in 1960s, 70s, scholars were saying, you know, uh, religion has lost its social significance, God is dead. Soon after that, scholars had to take back their words, swallow their words. Because religion came back in big way, many times in furious ways. and 1980s saw that, the global resurgence of religion, uh, you know the rising tide of Islam. And because of that, there was active Islamic there was Islamic activism, the Dawa movement, interference of foreign preachers in the '80s, politicization of religion and competitive pros- proselytization. So because of that. You know, uh, the state reasserted itself and uh, delineated the roles of religion and religious leaders. So, moving on, the relationship between uh, Islam and the state will continue to evolve in unique ways, and this can be explained by the inherent nature of religion, that is Islam, and uh, religion, including Islam, and inherent nature of the state. Let me explain. And here I uh, refer, make reference to Robert Bella, his magnum opus, Religion in Human Evo- Evolution, which says that prophets and founders of religions emerge in history as renouncers and denouncers. They renounce the ruling elite of their day, who had become corrupt, who had become unethical, unjust, and they denounce the immoralities and evils that had festered in the society. So, uh, cutting short, Islam possessed that natural instinct to reform. And Muslims cannot be indifferent to see the sins and the evils and the immoralities that had deformed society. You see, the separation of uh, Islam politics from Islam, segregation of Islam from the state, um, the relegation of Islam to the private sphere are modern liberal concepts. Conservative, traditional Islamic groups and movements do not believe that, and, this, and, if, and, and they believe that Islam is central sorry, politics is central to islam. it 's a central plank in Islamic belief. So because of that, Islam has the capacity to produce alternative meanings of social reality, and they have an alternative conception of social justice. And because of that, they can pose a challenge to a state ideology, thereby impinging on state authority. And I think this also applies to all to other religions too. I'm speaking because Matthew has asked me to address it from perspective of Islam, Matthew. I told you I wanted a religion. He so said, no, no, Islam. Um, now, on the other hand, the inherent nature of the state is such that it, it performs its role in a conservative way. It is the business of the state to make sure that the people have a good life. And the state will do what it takes you know, to, uh, to, to, to produce this, even to collaborate with religion, to reap the benefits of religion, or to contain religion and to deal with it decisively if religion poses um, a kind of uh, in its disruptive behavior. So this ambivalent nature, ambivalent, inherent, and unchanging nature of religion as well as state, could generate the propensity to disrupt, and this is to answer Jilin's question, the friendly religion state relations today or in future. That's what happened 30 years ago. So I'm, I thought I want to be realistic about this. Now likewise, the inherent nature of religion in making truth claims, declaring itself as the exclusive pathway to attain happiness, and asserting its reformist socio-political role, provide the fodder for interreligious competition and competition between religion and state, which, if you read uh, Lily's uh, book, Religion and Space, can escalate to conflict, and in many countries, it degenerated to violence. Uh, Nevertheless, the state institutionalizing of religion, especially Islam, has given mixed feelings. Islam is quite an institutionalised religion in Singapore. I mean, it's a carryover from the colonial era and from the Malaysia days. It's manifested itself in the formation of ways in 1968 and the enactment of Amla, the of Muslim Law Act, 1968. Um, and in the early days of Singapore, and I am also uh, a, a direct observer because my father, my dad, was the secretary of Moise from 1968 to 1988 for 20 years. And Moise was accused as the lackey of the government of the state, especially when Moise fronted, fronted the demolition of kampung Mosque, the banning of public call to prayer, and uh, <clears throat> the transfer of the ownership and management of mosques to Moise to the. St- to the authority um so so these were the challenges to islam state relations the institutionalizing of religion fast forward these remain still issues today you know the issues of hijab donning uh muslim ladies who complain they are not fairly treated the banning of entry of islamic preachers to singapore you know the um and some are complaining that they have been regulated because of the mandatory registration system that uh, Moïse introduced. And um, some parents complain about nationalization of madrasa because of the joint madrasa, madrasa system. So these issues are all embraced as challenges to Islam state relations, which we are dealing with, which we are tackling. And we take a holistic approach, not not a a culturalist uh, approach, you know, for all these issues here. So let me now go on and uh, answer uh, Jilin's second question about the role of the state. You know, as an engineer, I like to put all ideas on one sheet of paper. I am an engineer, not a social scientist, you know, like Lily or like (laughs) So I tried to put, and this is what I thought was the inter-religious ecology in Singapore. Because I I, I give talks and lectures on our religious harmony, I thought it's useful to have this. And of course the the role of the state is basically a steward, you know? The steward, the captain, the leader of our secular state system ideology, is custodian of state secularism, because it is through the secular state that we can ensure that diversity can thrive. We can ensure that religions and beliefs can coexist; they have equal recognition, equal space, you know, equal respect, and the state does not make any laws, any laws, or formulate any public policies or make public decisions based on religious resources or sacred texts. But they apply the concept of public reason, a reason that can be accepted by all the religions, religious non-religious, anti-religious, secularists, atheists, and everybody else, yeah? So I thought uh, this will remain as a key role of the state. You know, of course, be, within the ambit of steward, if you have arbitrate, to arbitrate conflicts, competition first, before it goes to conflict, it moderates any excesses of religion and beliefs. But I have to tell you something, that is, The state has to self-moderate itself, because just like a religion can go the extreme way, secularism can go the extreme way, and this will cause tension with the religious communities. So in that sense, the state will have to self-discipline itself and self-moderate. We do not want secularism to go the exclusive way, what scholars call exclusive humanism, what you see in, say, in France. You know, the French Republican model of secularism. Our secularism model is a very unique. I don't think you can find it anywhere in the world. I call it the secularism with a soul. Secularism with a soul. It's a religious-friendly secularism. I think nowhere else in the world is like this, huh? I, I think so, yeah. Um, and finally, i like to end off with three suggestions. I do not make it recommendations because recommendation means firm ideas these are just tentative ideas when i wake up in the morning probably i i I thought about these three ideas so i'd like to share this with you one is can we broaden the legal our legal framework intra-religious tensions or conflicts or disputes are emerging we don't see it in singapore yet i mean islamic community there are you know sunni shia sufis and the Wahhabis slash Salafis, you know. So these are emerging uh, it's not tensions yet, but emerging issues. Other countries, Sunni Shias are killing each other, they are bombing each other's mosques, you know. Um, Sufis (laughs) get killed, Shia, Wahhabis, Salafis get and I think we need to see how we can broaden our legal framework. I know secular state does not interfere. In religion, what happened in your family? It's your own business. You settle it, right? That's a secular state. So you not they don't, they don't bother about theology and matters of spirituality or in religious interpretation. But as soon as intra-religious tensions create public order issues, create security issues, create uh, harmony issues, I think we have to deal with it from the legal perspective. So I hope we can start thinking about it. Second is embed secularism. Now, this, if there's one thing that we must do today is to protect secular, our secular state ideology. That's the, so far, I think, the only way to ensure our religious, religious harmony. Mr Lee Kuan Yee, late Mr Kuan Yee, said it very clearly. It's the only framework, you know? But other than MHRA, which mentions secularism, you know, I mean, no, no mixing of religiously, religion and politics. Now, of course, we had the Declaration of Harmony, right? We declared that. I think there's no other... Of course, the Constitution says freedom of religion. That is the essence of secularism. But beyond that, I, I thought that let's try to embed it, you know, in our national DNA. Meaning Constitution, meaning that no one, no political party or government in the future can discard the secular state ideology. So maybe we may we have to start thinking about it, embed in the constitution so that people, you know, consent must be obtained before any change. So I don't know, just let's start thinking about it. And finally, deepen state religion engagement. And this is where I like to propose and suggest, and this is something which is quite is bothering me. So economy is so important to us, so we we train economists, we train accountants, engineers, computer scientists, everybody to mend the economy. But without religious harmony, without social harmony, you know, what is the economy? I remember DPM Tharman, 2015, Farid Zakaria, Washington Post, interviewed him. What is the greatest achievement of Singapore? Farid was very surprised. He said, not the economy, Success from third world to first world in less than 30 years. He said social cohesion unity of my society Our integration we are one people that is the biggest Okay, so I think we need to, to Expand more resources one minute one minute. see I think I need the Buddhist meditation. I mean we can stress here <laughs> So finally um, I think we need to create capacity. State will have to create the capacity to understand religion in society, to have inter-religious capacity or literacy. So which means that I I think our top scholars going to top overseas universities under government scholarships, let's think of how they can take modules, elective modules on religion in society and say comparative religion, in non-confessional, in non-confessional ways. I think we need to develop a, a kind of top bureaucrats, a, a critical mass for this, to understand religion, so that a deeper state, and religion needs a new cohort, a new breed of leaders with the capacity to speak, to apply, you know, to articulate their ideas, and to discuss and to debate, using the language of civic reason which can be understood by the religious, -religious, non-religious, anti-religious, atheists, agnostics, everybody in society. So let's think about it. Thank you very much. Thank you
1: very much, panelists. You've given us such a rich menu of ideas. I think Lily Lily, uh, set for us the sort of uh, historical and geographical contingencies that uh, determine and shape Um, the way that the state sees its role in managing uh, the relationship among religious communities. And she emphasized that for those various reasons, the state is a necessary, though not the only actor, that has uh, to try and foster and maintain that religious harmony. And then, uh, you know, uh, Ambassador Alami, Uh, gave us one case, right? The case of uh, the Islamic community and how that relationship has evolved over time. And uh, he was very candid in saying that it's not always uh, so well accepted. In fact, sometimes there's uh, feelings of ambivalence about that relationship, but then nonetheless, it's negotiated. Uh, And it's also evolved because they are New conditions that have emerged. Another point that Lily has mentioned. I think over the years we see globalization, the flow of ideas, the flow of people, and uh, facilitated through media, as well as specific incidents. I think uh, Ambassador Alami uh, mentioned 9/11 that have created the conditions that we face today. It's new, different from the even three decades ago, right? And then uh, Professor Magnus was very kind to be very systematic in saying here, here are the key uh, measures that uh, have been used. The hard law, right? The, the hard law of what's in legislation in the constitution. And even then, we understand the constitution also allows for not just the freedom to practice, but to uh, uh, you know uh, uh, to believe, but also to preach, uh, you know, religion. And then the soft law, um, a lot of um, the declarations, the guidelines that the communities have themselves come up with that they feel will um, uh, self-manage with the discussion of the state in, uh, the, in, in the room. Uh, something again that Ambassador Alami mentioned that you needed, uh, I think all three mentioned, that the state as not an actual player, is actually very useful in facilitating that that dialogue. Then you also mentioned the role of the judiciary, other bodies that have to do with, say, censorship and guiding public order, public morality, and so on and so forth. So a lot of ideas there, and I would really, really like to encourage you to uh, share your views from the ground, um, because uh, Ambassador Alami did put out a couple of... Uh, suggestions right and I think that uh, like like him I'm sure you have some thoughts and suggestions as to how we move forward in terms of fostering religious harmony and what do you think would be the role of the state and remember the state can be through direct measures through indirect measures through mediating mechanisms or by fostering or creating facilitating a dialogue among various religious communities so it can be legislative means as well as non-legislative means but it's not just the state acting alone but the state acting in collaboration in partnership with religious communities and then the far-out idea which is that sometimes that is not so easy as well it's not a bed of roses there are tensions to be managed okay so it's over to you please share your views and your suggestions your comments and questions Thank you. Yes, the gentleman in front. Yeah. Any others? Please just come straight up to the mic. Yeah. Please share your name and where you're from. Um, From AMP, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But go ahead. Okay. My name is uh,
4: Abdul Hamid. Bin Abdullah, Chairman of the Association of Muslim Professionals. I'd like to get the views from the panel. What you see as the greatest challenge that would uh, the state would have to handle to prevent uh, tension. And I think we have not heard so far about the internet and the social media, where all the young generation are plugged into. I could see they, they gather the sources of religious knowledge even from that angle. And, and it's a place where it's very difficult to regulate. And we know some people get self-radicalized. They are not able to distinguish between uh, fake news, for instance. And I just wonder how the state should handle this. Because I think this is one area that is probably a lack of legislative framework. And I think more importantly, I do not think we have done enough in the area of public education.
1: Thank you, Among the school
4: children, in particular. Thank you. Excellent.
1: Thank you very much. Yes. Okay, so let's take the second question. Well, I'm Huang
5: Yun from China, and I have a question for Ambassador Musa. Uh, You talk about three suggestions as uh, in your uh, conclusion, uh, which included uh, embedding uh, secularism and deepen state religion engagement. Uh, So my questions are first. Um, the Im- embedding uh, uh, secularism m- might be in tension with the requirement of religions. Because uh, uh, believers tend to think that um, uh, religion uh, is the way of their life. And they, uh, they tend to reason from their own faith. And so the second uh, question uh, is: um, the, you, you, the you talk about the religion. Um, religions must use language of civic reason. So that is the, this language of civic reason. Uh, 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 what's it, what is what is its relationship with the language of their, of the faith? of re, uh, and uh, what is the relationship of of the language of civic reason with public reason suggested by suggested by John Ross? Right. Yes okay. okay
1: thank you okay so we've got that and let's take a, another set of questions yes we'll stop at three people okay
6: <laughs> hi uh, my name is farihullah uh, president of united new muslim association uh, in Singapore, in fact, we are the role model for the harmonized system, especially interreligious harmonized, religious harmonized system. We have a lot of interfaith dialogue, interfaith uh, program, but, in fact, for example, uh, all the leaders have mentioned about our founding father, where he promoted the inter-religion, uh, interreligious harmonized system but we do have all this program but the thing is whatever the program happens then only public comes to know so very uh, the public public will come to know the media will cover during the program a lot of program has not been informed to the public example okay. interreligious program this one thing second thing is community leaders what they do they will have their own program but In fact, what we need to do, we need to do something aligned to the government, whatever government initiative. If we can do that, we'll be more supportive of our harmonized and religious harmonized system. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you. So first, the role of the internet. I think we have mentioned something about the virtual space and how it's being uh, sort of uh, looked into. So uh, maybe you can clarify and then also go further if you think that there's more to be done Uh, That's mr. Hamid's question then our friend from China um, she uh, Asked if uh, the call to embed secularism is anti-religion And I think there's something to do with our unique understanding of secularism here I think which you all did mention as well, so I think maybe you can spell that out Uh, Are you proposing ambassador that you know uh, you? you want to go forward in in a sort of anti-religion way. And then uh, her follow-up, the next question had to uh, do with civic reason. Again, is that anti-religion or different from that? Then uh, I think final one was there's a lot of talk about uh, cross-religion, inter-religious dialogue. Um, is that really happening because maybe the public doesn't know about it and Do you really need the state to kind of do more so that that's more authoritative and therefore more? Uh, uh, sort of effective. Okay, so I won't ask you to answer all the questions Just pick the ones that you want to tackle and or, or were directed to you. Okay, so want to grab that mic? Uh, Ambassador? Okay.
0: Thank you very much. I will uh, address Amit Abdullah's a question about uh not the part on social media or you know new media but i'll to the others but what you think is great what what you the question is what we think is the what i think is the greatest challenge here yeah. and i think this is linked to our, our mantra you No, know? our mantra has been it's always repeated and repeated and repeated that religious harmony is work in progress right Work in progress so there's no end to it it's always working progress so I reflected and say why is this so now why is this so is be- is because and I think um, we have to be realistic about this and be truthful to ourselves that we've always said that religion stands for peace religion stands for harmony religion stands for the good things and so on and so forth nevertheless the ambivalence of the secret. There are, within the teachings of religion, that are that could be interpreted and could be abused or misused for reasons which are not in for the good of the public. Uh, you know, for example, Mark Eugene's Mayer has said that within the depths of religion there are strands of violence. You know? So if the follower of the religion take this and do not understand the context, you know, and do not have a reasoned interpretation of text, things can go out of control. And I think to me this is the biggest challenge. So this is a role of religious leaders to guide the flock. How do you read your text? How do you contextualize? You know in Islam, um, the prophet's mission is 23 years, 16 years are uh, in, uh, in a state of war with, Medin, uh, with Mecca. 16 years out of 23 years, he lost 1,000 of his best companions. So when revelations come, and as a leader, revelations come in, meant to inspire the people to fight, to instigate them, you know, to give them the high spirits, you see. I mean, when you're a state of war, you, your lead, leader cannot be said lovey-dovey things, right? Maybe something that raises spirits. So many of Quranic verses are like that, but you, but when you read the Quran, you have to understand the context that this happened because of those. But fundamentalists, extremists, radicals, they don't literal reading. So I thought something that. Uh, I think secularism, quickly, I know you're looking at me as if you want to eat me up, you know, Jilin. No, yeah, I'm giving a, a sermon, I think. Uh, secularism and religion, uh, our, our good friend from China. Now, secularism does not mean it's anti-religion. You look at this history of how secularism spawned, the Western history, church and state. I mean, so you find that, it's not meant to be anti-religion secularism you know uh, 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 jacob uh, hollick who coined the term secularism he's a, he, he never says that it's an anti or anti-god or anti-religion or anti-morality no it's not that it's only there are certain strands and certain interpretations of secularism that go that's trajectory that uh is hostile to religion and some of the secularists The exclusive humanist you know declare god as the enemy and against religion so you know america is a very secular country but it's one is the most religious country 90 percent of americans have religion you know and no no american who is an atheist can be the president of the usa you know so i mean there's no no tension no contradiction between being secular and being a religion Recycling is a matter of how you arrange society. Yeah? Yeah. OK, I think I stopped here to give chance to the others. Thank you, much. So
1: can I just uh, invite Professor Magnus to um, really uh, delve a little bit more on the secularism yeah. point? Because you explained that in Singapore, we, we practice a form of accommodative secularism. And I suppose yeah. Ambassador Alami was saying to do more of that sort of type of secularism in your suggestion right ambassador
2: yeah yeah i think uh, the problem is uh, here in terms of definition um i think in china when we talk about secularism uh, it is a different def- application from that uh, that you have in in singapore or even in the states uh, the meaning of secularism in the states uh, is also different When we talk about secularism within the context of Singapore, within our own constitution, we are saying first that we have not accepted uh, the uh, preceding constitutional provision in Malaysia to say that Islam is the state religion. In other words, we do not identify a particular religion as the official religion of the state. So that's one characterization of secularism. The second one is, we are, in fact, saying that we are not anti any of the religions. We are neutral to uh, the religion. In fact, the Constitution say that there is a right to the freedom, the exercise, and the propagation of religion. So you must see secularism within that particular context. I didn't have time. Uh, Thirdly, I didn't have time to say very much about the two schools of secularism. There are two schools of secularism. One is a school which says, we are anti-religion. We are anti-religion, and because it is a claim to political dominance, uh, the question of control and power within the political sphere. The second one is, in Singapore, we exercise what is called accommodative secularism. We accommodate the practice of the various religions that we exercise uh, in Singapore. So what Ambassador Alami is in fact saying or suggesting is really this. There is no provision in our constitution which says that the Singapore state is a secular state. There is no such provision. Uh, It arises out of convention, it arises out of practice, and it arises because of judicial interpretation. So the courts have affirmed uh, the government to be a secular government. So what Ambassador is in fact saying is, Let's put it in the Constitution, and not only do we put it in the Constitution, we make sure that this particular provision cannot be amended except by maybe two-thirds majority and getting referendum uh, from the population. This is what his suggestion uh, actually means. The second one is, I think, just want to respond to our AMP colleague uh, in terms of social media. So Ambassador Alami has given one facet of... Uh, the misuse or the abuse of social media. In 2005 and 2006, we have got three young men who were prosecuted in, uh, in, in Singapore uh, for using social media and those words that were used in the social media were one that created ill will and hostility uh, towards other religion. The first case, a chap called Benjamin Koh, a 24-year-old uh, young man, young Singaporean, came before me when I was in the courts. And this was the first prosecution under the Sedition Act in in Singapore. So Sedition Act, as you know, uh, uh, was promulgated by the British colonial government uh, in terms of really in issues of disaffectation against the state. But there is one particular clause in the Sedition Act, which talks about a prohibition when words are uttered that foster, or promote ill will and hostility. So this chap, Benjamin Co., uh, came within that particular definition uh, of those words. Uh, the, um, the nature of that words was uh, that he had a picture of a pork, and then by the side of it, he had the word halal, for example. You know, And that affected, uh, there were complaints arising from uh, that particular statement that he made. So, so he came before my courts, uh, he, was, he was convicted, and I gave him uh, one month's imprisonment. Another guy who was also involved, not as severe, we gave him one day's imprisonment. A third guy came along, and also not so severe, but just to um, uh, ensure, to make the signal right, that this is not acceptable, uh, we gave him community uh, rehabilitation and, and treatment. So these are the three cases that came before the courts. But there were other cases uh, of our young men and our young women who had used Facebook in order to uh, utter words uh, which affect uh, the feelings and emotions of our other religions. Uh, They were just given a verbal warning and told not to repeat that again. So there have been cases. So there have been cases like that. It is not that there have not been cases. There have been cases... Uh, along those lines, of the abuse of uh, social media. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think they have been dealt with, I think the message has been done. I think one of the big arguments uh, that arose after the case was, should we now really prosecute them under the Sedition Act? Well, this is a huge act, you know. Uh, should it be applied to the issue of uh, religious words and religious harmony? That's a debate, I think, that uh, is undergoing, I think, in regard to this, uh, this particular issue. So that's that. Um, I think there was a question on um, social media. Yeah, I think I've answered the question.
3: Thank you. Um, so, so Richard has put someone in jail. I, I try to keep people out of jail through education. <laughs> Um, there was a question about public education and a question of whether we 've done enough. Um, so the question of of um, you know Ambassador Alami raised this about whether or not we might actually have a more education, uh, not of the confessional kind, but increasing religious literacy as such. I'm an advocate of that. I do think that the more we understand other religions um, the um, the less likelihood that, um, or, or the greater likelihood of, of understanding or at least acceptance. So the question of education, um, there's formal education in schools and universities and so forth, and then there's public education. And um, I do know for a fact that, um, say, um, one of our government departments has put in a lot of effort to put up um, a, a gallery, a diversity gallery, right? Harmony and Diversity Gallery where the commonalities of religions are foregrounded. Uh, The commonalities of belief systems, the commonalities of practices and rituals and so forth are foregrounded. And that sort of um, effort can be uh, a major part of the public education platform beyond religion being taught in the schools. Now you do know, uh, some of you will remember, that we did have religious knowledge taught out of the schools. And there were certain challenges surrounding that um, was that was that used as a platform for proselytization um, well did we have sufficient um, uh, teachers' talent um, to be able to deliver those cl- those lessons in the classroom uh, without it becoming a session for proselytization those are implementation issues that are real but at the end of the day um, I do believe that Ed- public education and education in general is very important and that there is still more that we can and should do um, This loops me back to the um, original question which our AMP colleague had raised about what the greatest challenge for the state is in managing religion and I'd like to try and um, reframe the question a little bit as to what the greatest challenge for Singapore is because um the challenge for Singapore is multifold, um, of which the state itself could be a challenge if it was a different kind of a state. So, if the state chose, for example, tomorrow to say we're adopting uh, a particular religion as the official state religion, within the context of a society that's already very multi religious and so forth, the state then becomes the challenge to Singapore, in my view. Right? Um, the internet. Um, is one, but it is only one of a range of challenges, and I wouldn't, I I wouldn't say that it's the most major of the challenges. Uh, it's certainly one of the major ones, um, but again, if like the state, if religious leaders um, were, were fortunate, um, but it's also I think hard work over many many years, where our religious leaders have the platforms for coming together for dialogue. Conversation and for working together and for working things through together. Um, some of those situations that you've heard um, that have been resolved amicably have been possible because of the years of building up the relationships. Now, if tomorrow or over time, can I do that again? I exceeded the time again, sorry. Um, very quickly, the religious leaders don't have that sort of. <laughs> Uh, That sort of relationship and understanding and openness um, and do not signal that to the community Then that becomes a challenge um, Even greater than the internet because the in-person influence uh, still remains
1: very strong Okay, so a rapid-fire round because we're going to close up Uh, Lily you mentioned that point about the platforms and the sharing I think the question was that this is not known Nobody knows out there beyond the religious leaders that get together. That's that's a a, a, a hypothesis. So is that true? And do we need to address that? Um, then uh, um, I think uh, Ambassador Alami, there was still that question about civic reason. Why put that on the table? Then the final one, quickly, very quickly, Professor Magnus, you mentioned that there were groups that you encountered in an international exchange. They held back in terms of uh, you know, socializing with you. I think the first panel talked about social inclusivity, and I think we do see that there is that segregationist tendency out there. So what? Can the state do, or what should the state do with community leaders to try and address that? So, really, really quick, rapid-fire uh, response. Uh, start with Ambassador Alami. Yeah, there was one whisker left. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. To do with yeah, um, I think we have to be able to communicate with each other in a language that is understood by all and appreciated by all. Um, I think our the issue is always that when we come together uh the tendency is for Muslims to fall back onto their traditions their their, their sacred texts and their you know and Christians and of course that's, that's 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 all right to to be done uh and with the non-religious you know they they don't rely on sacred texts and traditions so I thought how can there be a kind of common medium that binds Everybody, you know, uh, transcending specific the particularities of your religion and your belief, you know. So let's, so that we can transcend this and go to the broader issues of society, of humanity, eh? and, and 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 globally. I thought. Yeah. Thanks.
3: Very quickly, uh, have we done enough to make sure that the programs are known and people participate in them? Uh, no. That we will never have done enough. We will continue to have to keep doing. But does that mean that we haven't tried? No, we have. It's just that it will never be enough. When is enough enough? Um, we will never know that point, because when we do know that we haven't done enough, it means that we are in trouble. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Uh, I, th- I think um, the model that we had established um, post the JI matter, uh, where there was consultation between the state as well as the religious leaders, I think it's a model that we can look at in order to um, dialogue this, this particular issue. I think the first is that the victim, so to speak, uh, should not be uh, the object of regulation. And I think that will sort of uh, push them back, I think, in regard to that. So it's an issue of uh, what can be called uh, co-regulation. And co-regulation is based on a relational strategy, I think, Ambassador mentioned about dialogue, talking to one another, and things of that sort. I think it's a relational strategy that uh, becomes important. And I was also attempting to say in my speech that the NSC guidelines, which was established in 2008, this is the 10 years, and, uh, 10 years uh, after that uh, particular guideline. And I think it's time for us to be able to sort of revisit that and sort of relook and refine some of the nuances within uh, those guidelines. I think the first guideline talked about uh, interaction, uh, for example. It is stated in rather broader terms, and I think given the experience in the last 10 years, I think we'll be able to, um, uh, to refine that. It says, people agree to live, work, and interact with people of other faiths. And I think that is a statement uh, that we can sort of elaborate it and, and develop upon in this particular area. I'm not so sure that having legislation... Uh, would be uh, prudent uh, in this particular case. I think once it is cast in stone, uh, it is almost impossible to meet the dynamic changes uh, of some of these tendencies uh, that may arise.
1: So let me just close by saying, Venerable she mentioned how there are uh, possibilities of you know, uh, people with... Uh, from external sources coming in teaching different practices which are not familiar to us and he said that there's no way to actually uh, stop them from coming in or sharing it's difficult because they don't come through the very formal religious organizations and channels so ambassador Lamy just say a few words about you know what what professor Magnus just said how, how do you manage that and we'll close up we'll absolutely close up Well, he said that it's not necessarily the case that always you have to use legislation to manage these because these can be influences from outside. And sometimes it's really hard for the religious communities to also manage it. And these uh, 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 thoughts from external parties may be not contextualized, which is what your was your whole point right yeah, okay and therefore how do you manage this is this the mm. state working with the religious communities to manage this or is it really it's needing legislation to deal with it yeah
0: yeah, yeah. um i thought our mhra is a very creative piece of legislation you know uh, or religious? it is uh, legislation that uh, does not bring religion to the courtroom right okay and you you never do that you know, Other countries have seen the experience of issues being adjudicated by the courts and once that happens there will be a loser and a winner. The winner will be happy, the loser unhappy. Okay. There will be another process. And no way to, to, to have an amicable solution to the conflict. So, I, I believe that uh, that's not the way, but we still need the laws, I, I believe, okay. in order to uh, have a kind of uh, fall back, you know, uh, to make sure that at the, if we need something that we want to apply, we, we, we have it, we have the instrument to do it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you on that. Please join me in thanking our panelists and we'll wrap. Thank you very much.